Today's episode is sponsored by Steeped Games with Dan and Connie Kazmaier, the couple who designed Chai, an immersive tea board game. And now they're excited to share that their one to two player game Chai Tea for Two is live on Kickstarter until June 4th, featuring dice worker placement, cute tea tins, and an engine builder for your tea plantation. If you're like them and into two player games that play in 30 to 45 minutes after dinner, this might be up your alley. So come join the party and check out Chai Tea for Two on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, doing a BGDL community spotlight where I talk to a member of the Board Game Design Lab community about a specific topic that maybe is a little bit smaller than would be in a, a long episode. These are shorter form episodes, but I wanted to reach out to different people in the Board Game Design Lab community that were doing some cool things, whether it was with marketing or their game design process or doing something interesting with a mechanism or a theme or something like that, and just give them an opportunity to talk about what they're doing and share that with you and also give them a bit of a platform to get their ideas out there. And today we're talking about taking big games and turning them into small games, actually turning them into very small games, micro games even. And we're talking to Joe Clipful from Mythfield Games. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. How's it going? It's great, man. Really glad to have you here. This was such an interesting topic that you pitched for this uh, BGDL Community Spotlight episode and it just sounds so such an interesting like such an interesting idea as such a really good design challenge especially for maybe new designers who are trying to get better at designing games this whole concept of take a, a big game take a massive game even and what does it look like to break it down to the like the essence of its core mechanisms the essence of like the base tiniest parts of it and it still be good and it still be fun and it still be playable and so i'm really excited just to talk to you about how do you do that and why would you do that and all that but before we get into that uh, who are you how'd you get into game design all that kind of thing uh yeah sure uh so i'm joe clipful and uh i'm thus far an, an amateur designer i'm working i'm in the progress of self-publishing my first game and i've created my own uh, publishing company that you kind of mentioned. Uh, and so this is uh, doing it sort of not professionally, but at least as a serious side venture is is relatively new to me. Uh, in terms of game design, uh, I've been doing that as long, honestly, as I can remember. I was always uh, designing games as a kid. And typically that looked like uh, grabbing a notebook and grabbing a pencil. I learned how to make myself like some origami uh, dice. I would make a little cube and I'd write my values on there and uh, I was designing like little solo dungeon crawls before I even knew what a dungeon crawl actually was. Uh, and I'd, I'd be playing through them. And, and so I did that probably all through high school. And then 
it sort of dies out as you become an adult, you know, you, you start thinking, well, maybe I should start doing responsible things and quit doing so many fun things. Uh, and so it, it sort of died out in college, but then more recently, I'd say about a year, year and a half ago, a coworker of mine introduced me to like this secret subculture of modern board games that I had no idea existed. Uh, I, I had played Settlers of Catan maybe 10 years ago. And at the time, it blew my mind. Uh, and I was thinking, well, this is it. Like, this is the board game. This is the pinnacle. Like, society has arrived, you know. Uh, but I had really no idea at the time that it was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I It was just, my eyes were wide when I discovered hobby board games. And uh, so the past about year, year and a half, I've been consuming as much content as I can and just uh, kind of uh, gawking at these games and, and learning all the mechanics that I can and getting back into designing my own games. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a rabbit hole once you start <laughs> traveling down it. That is for sure. But uh, really glad that you you dove in. Well, let's uh, let's start talking about the topic at hand. Let's talk about big games, taking big games and turning them into small games, turning them into micro games. Exactly what does that mean? So, you know, give give us an idea about what you've been doing, what you've been working on, like What's a good little like definition of as far as what you mean by taking a big game, making it into a micro game? Sure. I think kind of the quintessential list for this you can find on BoardGameGeek. It's um, a forum curated by John Keane, I believe, who's a, an accomplished designer in his own right. Uh, and it's called uh, Project Shrinko. And if you go to that list, there's, oh, I don't know how many there are. There's, there's more than uh, probably 25, 35 maybe different games that People have taken well-known, um, well-established, well-loved uh, big games and shrunk them down to the absolute bare minimum. And defining a micro game is, well, I, you know what? I guess it's pretty easy. It's anything smaller than the big game, right? Um, I think common vernacular in the business is an express game is a little bit smaller. A micro game is a lot smaller. I know that a convention more recently has been 18-card games, 9-card games, um, just shrinking it down as small as you can get it uh, would be kind of my definition. Yeah, gotcha. And now, if I recall, I've seen, uh, I think maybe John even did this himself, I'm not sure, but uh, Terraforming Mars turned into a very, very tiny version. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's uh, Tiny Forming Mars uh, <laughs> in the in the vein of uh, just having fun with these micro games. Everybody seems to be on board with that. And uh, there's always a punny name that you get with these micro games. And, uh, you know, and some of the other ones, uh, Settlers of Catan has a micro version. It's called Katini. Uh, and what was the other one I liked? It was Talisman. Talisman has a mint tin version uh, and it looks spectacular. I haven't played it, but they called it Talismint. And I just really appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. And so why, why do you do this? Why would a designer want to take on this monumental, I guess maybe it's an interesting word to use, but this monumental task of taking a big game and turning it into a small game? Um, I think the short answer is because it's fun or, you know, because it's there. You ask somebody, why are you going to climb Mount Everest? And, and the answer sometimes is because it's there. Uh, but really, there's a lot of utility in it as a designer that I sort of, I didn't set out to learn anything from it, but I, I definitely have. Uh, it's what it's taught me because I've tried to design games prior to this and the only really good design that I think I've come up with so far was sort of a byproduct of trying to shrink a big game and I think what tends to happen with me is um, I get a little bit excited about 
kind of stuffing everything into my game. You know, how many cards is enough cards? And so I'd make these kind of massive games with a lot of fat that needed to be trimmed. And it's always harder to go that direction, you know, to shrink your game down and, and to trim the fat than it is to build from the bottom up. Um, so it's a it's a constraint that is extremely, it, it's in a useful a useful exercise, I think, for game designers where um, you're just absolutely forced to distill your game down into the most basic parts of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this is such a great way for new designers to get better at designing games, you know, and not even to go into it with the, the mentality of publishing or even maybe even to put it out there at all, like the, just something as, to take on as a design challenge. But I feel like a lot of times we think of creativity like it's magical. You know, we think creativity is like something you're born with or like, wow, this person's really, really creative. And I feel like a lot of times someone who's really creative is also a person who has a really good, really deep understanding of whatever medium they're in. You know, we'll talk about a person who's a great athlete and they're really creative on the field, whether the way that they pass a soccer ball or, or kick, you know, or shoot goals or, you know, uh, play basketball or whatever. We'll talk about, oh, they're really creative in the way they do this. Well, they probably understand how to play the game really, really well. And out of that understanding, they have figured out different ways to be creative. And I think the same thing in art or writing or game design, like the more you kind of grasp what is possible, you can be really creative in how you uh, approach different things. And I feel like, you know, taking on this challenge of, all right, this is a massive game. Let's shrink it way, way down. Now you're learning, you're understanding how other designers, especially great designers have figured things out and and can now uh, do things and you're learning. And now you can maybe be a little bit more creative. And so tell me about some of the games that you have shrunk down and let's talk about the things you've been learning because of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess the first one and probably my more well-known one at this point is uh, Pocket Watch. It's an 18-card micro version of Set a Watch, which is a, a small box game um, published by Rock Manor Games. Uh, and I had uh, the origin story of this. Getting back to the why question is is kind of funny because I, I was, um, if you're familiar with the game Palm Island, which is a an in-hand game and it's also 18 cards at least at the base game. Uh, I was playing that in bed because that's kind of, I mean, I'm busy kind of like all of us are, but I, I've got two little kids at home and um, sometimes all I get for gaming at night is a half hour before bed. And so I'm laying in bed and I'm playing Palm Island and nothing against Palm Island. It's an absolutely fabulous game. Uh, but I was thinking, man, I wish I could be playing a dungeon crawl right now or something fantasy themed because that's kind of my thing. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I can just do that. Maybe I could just make one. Uh, so I started sort of headhunting for a good candidate and I own um, and I love the game set a watch. And when I was kind of looking at different games that I could do this with set a watch stood out because if you, if you stare long enough at the game and you played enough, you realize just how elegant it is. If I, if I can kind of use that word um, because it, the main mechanic is just a puzzle. There's not a lot of frills like you might find in a normal dungeon crawl. There's not a lot of like, if then rules, um, there's no monster AI to try to master. It's just roll some dice, try to muster up enough um, attack values to defeat the line of monsters coming at you. And it translated extremely well. Honestly, this pocket watch game was a pretty seamless transi transition from the big game into the micro game. Um, there were certainly some challenges. So the main mechanism was not too difficult to translate. I mean, in, in set a watch, you've got a, a line of monsters represented by cards in a row. Uh, coming at you and you defeat them sort of one or two at a time and you have to defeat these waves coming at you well actually that translates um really easily into an 18 card game 
Um, you can use a number of, I think I used 12 of the cards for these creatures coming at you. Um, and all I did was I make him, I made them dual halved. So not, not dual sided, but dual halved. So a top half and a bottom half. So depending on the rotation and the orientation of the card, uh, you're facing a different monster each time. And the variability then comes in with um, the order of the creatures in the line, uh, which is kind of where you get the replayability of, of each of these games. Okay, very cool. And so tell me about another little game you've been working on as far as shrinking it down. Uh, before we hit record, you're telling me you've basically been trying to take Gloomhaven, the tiny game that it is, <laughs> and turn it into a micro version. So tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. There, there again, we have to ask, why would you even <laughs> try to do that? Uh, so I, I love Gloomhaven, or I think I do. I've played Jaws of the Lion. Uh, so I haven't played Gloomhaven proper, but I've been told the experiences are really similar. And I uh, absolutely love the game. And I thought, you know what, why not? This was one of those, um, let's just see if I can do it sort of things. Uh, and so not only am I trying to turn it into uh, an 18-card game, uh, I'm trying to distill it all the way down into a tableless game there again like uh palm island uh and so it's called Gloomhold. that's the working title and i have some working prototypes and it's gonna work i know it's gonna work and i know it plays fun uh, i have some drastic rebalancing to do so uh, it's coming uh, i have permission from the publisher actually already to go ahead and publish it to uh, the file section of the gloomhaven page uh, and he's even going to let me use some of the original art. And so this, it, it's, I'm really excited to put it out there. But uh, talk about a learning experience. So where I said uh, Pocket Watch was honestly pretty seamless. I had some spatial things to try to solve, like where do I fit the abilities and how do I distill the game board down into one card? Um, that was mostly just layout stuff uh, and, and hardly innovation. Um, but in Gloomhaven, um, it's, a, it's a beast. It's a monster. And there's a lot to it. And so... I'm having to make actually really difficult and fun decisions about what do I keep? What do I abstract? What do I leave out completely? Um, what needs to stay to preserve the experience of the big game so that when people play it, they feel like they're playing Gloomhaven. Um, it can have all of the same bells and whistles, but still not feel like the big game when you play it. And so that's the challenge uh, in distilling that all the way down. And uh, if we get far enough in our conversation here, uh, there's some really practical tips that ended up coming out of that. Well, yeah, let's just dive right in. What are some of those practical uh, tips? Uh, sure. So I, I have a few that I noted uh, before our call. And the first one we already touched on. Uh, and this one is 100% a requirement. If you're going to make a micro game, you need a pun in the name. Uh, <laughs> and so we've already <laughs> talked about Tiny Forming Mars and Katiny. Uh, and Pocket Watch is sort of a fun one. And, and Gloomhold is kind of a fun one. So uh, obviously, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. But it, it sort of fits with the theme, and I, I love that people treat it that way, and we can have this sort of whimsical experience and not take ourselves too seriously. So if you, if you go look on Project Shrinko, you'll see just some really the, the creativity shining from these people. Uh, tip number two, and this is uh, kind of more of a housekeeping thing, uh, just so, to make sure you do it right. If you're going to make a micro version of an already published game, uh, make sure you go ahead and reach out to the publisher and get permission to post it. Uh, I know maybe sometimes there's gray areas and you're like, well, maybe I should just post it. Uh, no, I would suggest in any case, go to the publisher's website, find an email um, and get a hold of whoever you can. And they'll get you to the right person and ask if you can post your micro version of the game um, to the file section of the big games page on BoardGameGeek. Right. And this is super important. You know, very rarely are you going to have any issue. I imagine. I mean, most of the people who publish games are pretty amazing people. Uh, and are going to be more than happy for you to do this because honestly, you're getting more 
eyeballs to their game. I mean, this is in a lot of ways just another way for their game to get out into the world. Uh, and this might be something that someone sees on a random kind of Facebook post and goes, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I never heard of the, the original game. Oh, let me check that out, too. And so I feel like everybody wins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like you said, these these publishers are so great to work with. We're in such an amazing hobby with amazing people. And um, in both cases that I've reached out, I, I was in touch with Rock Manor Games, and um, I've been in touch with the publishers of Gloomhaven. And in both cases, they've been super nice about it and super supportive and excited about the fan-made content. So uh, I wouldn't be afraid to reach out to them. Uh, and then when you do post it, uh, one note about it is make sure you give proper attribution. So um, even in the rules for your micro game, in the description of it, um, note who the publisher is, who the original designer is, uh, and who the artists are just for good measure. Uh, and then while you're at it, while you're reaching out to the publisher, one tip that I think can really help you preserve the look and feel of the original game is ask if you can use the original art files. And this is something I wouldn't have thought of until um, I found the the free print and play file for uh, for set a watch. And so I asked permission to use the original art from that print and play file. It was a PDF, so I could drop it into my um, graphic design software and I could use it. Uh, it was extremely usable. And so uh, he gave me permission for that, which I was not expecting. I was expecting publishers to really hold those um, art assets close. But man, they just love the participation from the community. And, and it's it's just they're happy to give that permission. Uh, typically, has been my experience so far. So uh, if you if the files aren't available, I would go ahead and have the courage to ask the publisher if they have anything that you could use. Uh, because the more that you can preserve the look of the original game, I think the more it will be embraced by the community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick, so tell me about like the the early stage of working on one of these games. Like, do you sit down and kind of write out? the core mechanisms or write out the different ideas in the game or how the game plays or the theme or different things you want to shrink down. And maybe you have like a list of 10 things that, that are going on in the big game. You're like, okay, I'm going to take three of those and then turn them into the smaller game. Like tell me the, about the early stages of this process. Yeah, that's the perfect question. Uh, so when you're looking at a big game and I sort of uh, kind of teased this earlier when I, when I said I was looking at set a watch and how I kind of uh, was gauging that it, it would translate well, um, when you're looking at the big game and you're trying to make it a micro game, you have to go strip it of all of the chrome, all of the bells and whistles, all of the frills, and figure out where exactly is the fun coming from. I know, Gabe, on your podcast, I've heard you and others say, um, when you're designing your game, find the fun and then pivot and and build a game around that. And don't be afraid to leave other things behind if that's not where the fun is. And the interesting part of designing a micro game is it's similar but different. You're not like an inventor where you're having to go through this guessing and checking process, uh, like the scientific method or something, and trying to find the fun. Um, when you're distilling a big game into a micro game, someone's already done that. Someone has already found the fun and published it in a game that presumably has been embraced by you and the community if you're, if you're going through this process. Uh, so you're not an inventor, you're a detective. Uh, you're looking at a game that's already out there and the fun part is when I started doing this, I realized sometimes I assumed some things about what the strength of a game was, and I was dead wrong. Uh, you, have to, you have to really toy with it and figure out what's the core mechanism, what are the key decisions that people are having to make, uh, where's the core tension coming from, and that's like your flagship then. That's your one thing or two things or three things that you are not going to compromise on, and then the rest um, you can go ahead and abstract as needed. Uh, you can either cut it out or you can make it more simple. You know, if, if combat isn't the main thing in your game, um, 
go ahead and turn it into a die roll instead of a whole entire process. Go ahead and abstract it out. Make sure that you keep the core experience uh, and you just let go of everything that's uh, unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing what to abstract out and what to leave in is really one of the main things that you can learn through this process and understanding like what is the actual core of a game versus kind of the core, but maybe a little bit on the periphery <laughs> and understanding what those things are and then how to, you know, change them in, in ways that keep the game small and keep the game moving, keep the game flowing. Now, do you also go through this same kind of process with like the emotions of the game or like the tension or the feeling that players get that you want to make sure the small version also accomplishes similar to the big version? Absolutely. And it's a thousand percent more difficult. Um, if you look at a game on paper and you look at the mechanisms, that's easy to translate over. You can say, well, I can keep, I don't know, card drafting or deck building or whatever the main mechanism is. Um, you can figure out how to turn that into something that can fit into a micro game. When you're talking about experience or, or emotions, um, that's something that can only be tried and tested. Uh, so that, that can, that's more difficult to nail down. And so what I do is I'll make myself a prototype, uh, keeping the core mechanisms as I see fit, uh, and then I'll just play test. I'll play test, play test, play test. I'll get other people's takes on it. Uh, and I'll, I'll ask them what kind of tensions they're feeling. I'll try to be sensitive to that myself. And then you just kind of have to feel it out. This is where uh, it's a little bit more art than science, I would say. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, are there any little like tricks of the trade or a little like pro tips, things that maybe you had to learn the hard way that you could share with people to kind of speed up their process and learning how to do this effectively? Uh, for sure. I have a few of them. And a lot of these have to do with so most of my struggles, like I said, came from trying to make a micro game version of Gloomhaven. And one issue that I ran into, and this is um, a pitfall that I would ask people to look out for is uh, don't have don't overload people with mentally tracking values. If you have weight in your game, you want them to be tracking systems rather than values. And my specific example of this is um, with my in-hand version of Gloomhaven, uh, my tableless version. You don't. The trouble is you don't have cubes, you don't have tracks, you don't have dice, and so you can't just slide your cube along a board and that can track your health. Or you can't just slide a cube and track your gold. Uh, you have to have different ways to track these things. And so originally in one of my first iterations, I just made it basically unwieldy for the player because they were having to mentally remember their health points. And it, it was getting to the point where that's all that you were basically doing. You were just going through the motions of the rest of the game. You were going through combat and most of your mental capacity was focused on remembering your health points and your, the monster that you were fighting uh, their health points. And so I had to, I had to come up with some different solutions than what I was doing. So uh, the main tip is the temptation is going to be there to ask your players to remember values when you should have them tracking um, like systems in the game. And what I mean by that is uh, if you think of heavy games like a spirit Island or something there, there's tracks to remember the, the piddly stuff that, that you shouldn't have to try to mentally remember uh, what you have to try to, to wrap your head around is the systems in the game and how they're interacting and predicting where things are going to be one, two, three, three to head. So that's where you want your players uh, focusing their mental efforts. 
yeah, this is definitely something to keep in mind as far as like not overloading your players with too much to think about. Like you want your players to have the cool, fun choices on their mind all the time. That's what you want them thinking about, not having to remember, like you're saying, health points or anything like that. And I played a published game from a pretty well-known publisher uh, a while back that you had to keep track of the number of resources that you had from turn, like each turn, right? It was a roll and write. And so you had to kind of mentally keep track of like, okay, I've got four wood and I've got two stone. And but you had to keep it in your head. Like there's nowhere to like write that down or keep track of that from turn to turn. It's like, this is annoying and frustrating and it's not fun. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind. Anything else that you want to share as far as things you've learned or, or things that you've picked up along the way in doing this? Sure. Uh, uh, kind of two more things. The first thing is just furthering that conversation about how do you offload some of this mental energy and the things that you have to remember onto the game without a board or without cubes or without dice. Uh, and so I have a few solutions that I've come up with. And one thing you got to realize, if you're gonna if you're gonna design uh, a tableless game, remember how much you can get out of a single card. And the perfect example of this, and this was a huge inspiration for me, was if you've played Palm Island, they have like a round tracker card. And all it is, is um, you, you, you cycle through the deck eight times in Palm Island. And so what, what the designer did is they have one card that's the round tracker, and it has a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight on it. But each of those numbers is on a different orientation of the card. And so you have to remember that if you're looking at a single card, you've got a lot you can work with there just based on how the card is rotated or flipped. Uh, so he has you start with the one facing up because uh, the cards are split into halves and into sides. And he has the one facing up, you get to the end of that. And then when you start the next round, you put that card back in the back of the deck, but you rotate it 180 degrees. So that now the two is up. So now you've offloaded that information. You don't have to remember what round you're on. And I think if I'm remembering right, the designer even said originally, he didn't have that in the game. It was sort of a last minute addition when he realized, oh, people are going to struggle with this. This isn't that fun. I've just been remembering it because I've played this game a thousand times and it comes easy to me. But uh, he came up with a way to offload that onto the game. And so if you're designing a tableless game, remember, you've got a lot to work with in just a single card in that way. And then the other thing, and here again, Palm Island is the perfect example where you can stash cards or you can kind of slot them over on the right. Or if you can figure out a way for people to hold the card in their right hand or um, to keep resources a different way. That works really well. Uh, and then if you're talking about tracks, you can track health points, you can track gold, you can track other things by just putting, so typically in, in an in-hand game, um, the, the main format is you have the stack of cards or the deck in your left hand. Well, you can take a card, you can put a track on it, let's say 1 to 15 health points or something, and you can or you can stick it in there behind the rest of the deck, and you can slide that card up and down so that you can visually see what am I at for health points, what am I at for gold. Uh, so it, that sort of replicates if you had that card on the table and you were just sliding a chit around or if you were sliding a cube around. Uh, so there's you got to be pretty creative when you're trying to come up with ways to track things, especially in these tableless games. And then the other thing was uh, randomizers. That was a huge problem. In Gloomhaven, you have really cool stuff like the combat modifier deck where you flip over a card and you kind of see, am I plus one attack this time or, or uh, did I miss completely? And so it adds this little bit of uh, element of surprise and, and uh, stand up from the table moment. Maybe not that drastic, but it, it keeps you guessing and it makes you not 100% sure uh, when you're going into battle, if you're going to pull off what you want to pull off. So it's a crucial element to the game. 
Um, but how do you do that when you don't have any randomizers to work with? I don't have a combat modifier deck available to me in an 18 card game. There's just not the real estate. Uh, so one thing that I came up with is uh, what I call the ruler roll. Uh, so I have a card and its main job, it, it has some other jobs, uh, but its main job is to hang out in your right hand and on either uh, on the top and the bottom border of this card, I have um, my rolling values and I could have made it like a D6. I could have put one through six a few times, but uh, what I did was I turned it into ABC because I only needed like 33% odds for what I was trying to accomplish. And so uh, on the top and the bottom borders of this card, I made it look like a ruler and I put these dashes uh, and in between the dashes, I have ABC, ABC, and all the way across. And then in your left hand, on the cards in your left hand, there's like this thin but prominent and easily seen red line right across the middle of the cards. Uh, and you would think it was just part of the graphic design, but it actually serves a critical purpose where when I need to roll, I take the card from my right hand and all I do is I place it on the card in my left hand and I look where those two lines intersect. And that tells me if I rolled A, B, or C. Uh, originally when I was going to implement this, I thought, well, I'm going to have to ask players to close their eyes. You know, everyone's going to want to cheat. You know, it's going to be easy to cheat and just grab the letter I want. Uh, no, it, it actually works extraordinarily well. Uh, I think it works great as a randomizer for an in-hand game where you just place it on there. And uh, at least my mind, uh, my dexterity isn't good enough. I couldn't cheat if I wanted to. Um, so that's a good way to integrate some uh, randomness if you want sort of that um, surprise moment or that element of uh, not being sure of the outcome in your game. And then another one is um, just card order. So it seems simple, but even if you're working with a tableless game or a micro game, you can get infinite replayability and variability just by shuffling the cards. Uh, in Pocket Watch, the main puzzle of the game is the, the health point values of the creatures coming at you. And just shifting the order of those cards uh, gives you a completely unique puzzle every time. Uh, and then if you add in the rotation where you can face a different creature depending on how the cards are rotated, uh, that adds uh, replayability that you wouldn't expect in a little game. Uh, so don't forget about um, your variable card order, just shuffling. Uh, maybe have one card depend on uh, the value of the next card. And in that way, you can just you can modify each card so it feels like a different experience each time. Yeah, those sound like really smart ways to overcome, you know, very obvious design challenges. And uh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Joe, this has been great, man. Uh, closing thoughts. I anything you want to leave listeners with? Uh, like, what would you tell people that maybe they're sitting there thinking about, well, I could I could take this big game that I love and maybe turn that into a, a smaller game or a micro game. What would you tell them to kind of help encourage them? Yeah, I would encourage people to do this kind of for two reasons. Number one is I want to play those games. I love micro games, and it's kind of what I have time for in the stage of life that I'm in right now. So by all means, everybody go out and design these micro games because I want to play them. Uh, the second reason is one we've kind of already discussed. It's going to be a hugely beneficial exercise for you. Uh, if Even if you're just getting started into game design, that's a, that's a great time to do it. But uh, even if you're established in it and you need a new perspective or you need a fresh challenge and you're in a funk and you need to force yourself to think creatively and innovate, go ahead and pick a game you like and say, how small can I get this? And you will be absolutely amazed at what your brain will come up with when faced with those constraints. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Joe, where can people find you, your games, all that kind of thing online? Sure. Uh, you can see what I've got going on with my new publishing company. Um, you just go to mythfieldgames.com uh, and you can get like signed up for my newsletter and, and you can get signed up for reminders on a crowd sale I have coming up through Game Crafter. I'll be taking 
uh, a game that's sort of based on uh, the pocket watch that we mentioned, but I turned it into a tableless game, uh, and I changed quite a few mechanics in that uh, innovation step, I guess. And so, if you're interested in that at all, the game is called Grip Hold Tower, and you can find the Grip Hold Tower Facebook group uh, on Facebook, and and I'll certainly uh, add you to that group if you request to join. Awesome. Well, Joe, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with turning more big games into small ones and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, Gabe. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?